Hi, and welcome to the Decoding Culture podcast on This Is HCD. The podcast focuses on the importance that culture plays in all areas of business and society, from how it shapes organizations to how it influences consumer experience, design, and larger societal trends. My name is John Curran, and I'm your host. I'm a business anthropologist, executive coach, and CEO of JC and Associates, which is a consultancy that explores how culture shapes organizations and consumer behavior. So for this episode, I want to start with a question. Why are companies and brands turning to business anthropology to understand their consumers and organizations? To answer this and to discuss the value of business anthropology in general, I spoke with Bob Morris, a business anthropologist and adjunct professor at Columbia Business School in New York. Bob has written five books and his articles have appeared in numerous media outlets such as the Huffington Post and Forbes, just to name a few. We explore how both ethnography and culture are the two main pillars that frame business anthropology, and it's how anthropologists use these to help companies reframe tough business questions that is really key. As part of this, Bob importantly described how ethnography must not be seen as simply a research tool, but crucially a way of thinking that combines both research techniques with theory from the social sciences. Critically, he makes the point that business anthropology goes beyond ethnography. It is a profession where companies get value through being able to see people and also culture from a 360-degree point of view. So therefore, business anthropologists challenge conventional thinking in order to expose new opportunities for business. So let's get into the conversation. Hi, Bob, and welcome to Decoding Culture podcast. Well, thank you for having me. That's great. How is it in New York at the moment? It's just fine. It's overcast. It's a little cold, but it's fine. How is it? You're, are you in London? I am in London. I'm, I'm in South London, so an area called Crystal Palace. So it's about a kind of 20-minute train journey into the center. Oh. But um, you've just described London overcast <laughs> and a bit cold. So, so we are literally across the pond. Okay. That's great. Bob, listen, I want to kick off just with a very general question, a bit about you, really. And, uh, you know, how did you get into being a business anthropologist? Well, my case and the case of a lot of people, I'll say of a certain vintage who are working in business anthropology or have have worked in business anthropology, is that we came to it in uh, as many ways as there are a number of us. In other words, uh, everybody has a different story. And most of us who've been doing this for a while actually didn't get trained in business anthropology. We were trained in traditional anthropology. So I received my PhD in 1980, and I did my field work in the rural Philippines. And it was on friendship and kinship and a number of different dyadic relationships. And then I connected that with broader social networks. And um, then I, uh, I thought about teaching. I actually did some teaching. I wasn't happy with the academic job market. And I found out about a program at NYU, New York University's business school, that essentially refitted people with social science and humanities PhDs to enable us to enter business. It was a summer program. It was about two months long. And I took that in 1981. And then I got a job at Gray Advertising in account management working on Jif peanut butter <laughs> and worked in the 80s in account management and then started noticing articles 
there was someone named Steve Barnett who wrote some articles on applying anthropology in advertising. I was intrigued by it, but I had a good job. I didn't want to change that job. But then I started getting a little more interested in it because I saw a few more articles appearing about the Margaret Meads in marketing and so on. And I started yeah. collecting them. And then I, I was introduced to a few people one way or another, uh, and I started applying a little bit of it on the job. And uh, then in, um, I would say around 1989, 1990, I did my first ethnography with um, Pine Saw. And then I did some work with WD-40 using ethnography and, and did more and more of it. And so my career changed from, I moved from account management into account planning, which was, is the strategic focus in advertising. That was in the 90s and really focused more on bringing anthropology in, but still not, it wasn't 100% of my job. And then in um, 2006, some friends and some people I'd known for a long time in marketing research invited me to essentially succeed one of their principals. And I joined that firm as a partner and did that for 11 years. And then I was much more explicitly and emphatically a business anthropologist, although we also did quantitative research and a number of other things. So my, my path has been on the applied side, first academic, then business, then back to business anthropology. And the other part of it is that starting in um, the early to mid-2000s, I started engaging in business anthropology scholarships. So I wrote some articles and some books. So Bob, that's really interesting because I think it, it's very similar to my background as well, becoming an, a business anthropologist. I was doing a PhD. I studied at LSE, went to Goldsmiths, was writing up my PhD, and then good 18 years ago, got contacted to go and understand mobile technology out of nowhere, which was, you know, so it's almost like feels like we've made our own pathways in, into this world of business anthropology. Does that sound right? I think that's exactly right. And I think it actually benefits us because not only do we think as anthropologists, but we think along the lines of whatever other thing or things we did along the way. Yeah. Would it be a fair question to kind of say, can we define or can you define business anthropology? Do you think it's got a clear definition there? Well, I can define it. Whether or not it's clear or at least everyone can agree on it is another question. The way I would define it, and I think some people would agree with this, at least in the United States, because I think there are some differences around the globe, uh, very broadly, it's the application of anthropological methods and theories to problems and opportunities in industry. But we need to get a little more specific than that. So if you think about where it's applied and the kinds of industries it's applied, so one would be marketing, marketing research, advertising, things surrounding consumer behavior and the messages that go to consumers about brands. Related to that would be experience that users have with brands, so user experience or UX studies. There's a lot of interest in design as it relates to new product development and product improvement. There's another area that focuses on organizational culture. So that's a whole other field. And sometimes that can connect with an understanding of uh, marketing because uh, if you're working in marketing anthropology, you need to understand your client's culture, for example. And then there are companies that use anthropologists for intercultural management. And then there are anthropologists who work in what might be broadly defined as business anthropology who are focused on sustainability or crisis management or work in banking or technology. So it's really interesting. You've kind of almost created a picture there of many different areas of business life 
almost like business culture where business anthropology can really exist or really sit. I think, I guess, one of the traditional images was that marketing research or maybe kind of design and innovation, but you've created a much more broad picture there. Yeah, I think business anthropology is is very broad, but what happens is that practitioners tend to focus on one or two areas. So if you if you work for anthropologists, business anthropologists are working at Google and Microsoft and Facebook, and and they work for Procter and Gamble and and Campbell Soup and and General Motors, and there are some that focus. I know someone was of Variety, for example, who worked for almost twenty five years at General Motors, looking at organizational culture and culture change. The work that I've done has focused more in the consumer area, a lot of packaged goods, uh, luxury hotels, some other areas. And then there are people that focus on user experience. And I know, for example, user experience people that work at Airbnb and at Dropbox and so on. So, I mean, if if we think about then, as you describe where it potentially can exist, what's the value it brings? What value does business anthropology bring to actually business itself? Well, the thing that most people think about first is ethnography. And I always say that anthropologists don't have much. We have ethnography and we have culture. Those are our two big guns. And so, you know, one part of what we do is that we do ethnography, and a lot of people do ethnography, but the way that we do ethnography, if we're trained in anthropology, is a bit different from people that may have just read about it or may have learned about it in a different field. So, for example, we not only listen and observe, but we often connect ethnography with anthropological theory. And I always think that the theory, in a way, turbocharges the findings so that you can move to more powerful insights. So one contribution is just the pure methodology, but then as anthropologists, we bring something more, which would be the theory. And then I would talk about and think about culture as being beliefs, ideas, values, rules, all those kinds of things that we associate with culture and connecting those to brand experiences, our concept of holism and looking at people's lives in a kind of 360 way. And another good example would be uh, the way we think about, for example, in dealing with clients, their point of view versus the customer's point of view. So EMIC as the customer's point of view and the EDIC as the the marketing manager's point of view. And I'm speaking now from very much a marketing anthropologist perspective. But those are the kinds of ways we add value. But of course, Elizabeth Brighty, who worked for General Motors, did a lot of work on organizational culture to try to uh, improve relations among different groups at General Motors. So her work had clear value there. They kept her on for as long as they did. And there are a lot of anthropologists who were, and I know you do too, do organizational culture work and add enormous value to organizations working better. Anthropologists add to consumers shopping experiences. I did a project for um, Ella's Kitchen. It's a baby food. And we looked at how moms experience shopping for baby foods. And one of the things we learned as they were looking at packaging is how important it was to see the product as it appeared in transparent packaging, which their company at the time did not offer. But there's a lot of value that we add in a lot of different ways. You've touched on so much there. I think one of the, one thing I came across your book that you wrote with uh, Timothy Melfide about advertising and anthropology, ethnographic practice and cultural perspectives. I think it's chapter eight. You talk about uh, business anthropology beyond ethnography. And I think what you've been talking there, you're touching on that about how it's not just this thing of doing 
or it's not just a methodology and approach, it's a way of thinking as well with theory. And I guess that's one of the kind of critiques about ethnography, how it exists outside academia. It kind of gets watered down to just observation, maybe. And I'm, well, I guess what I'm kind of thinking about here is when we're thinking about anthropological theory, what types of theory sit with you when you're within this world of the business anthropologist or business anthropology? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. I can talk about some work that I've done and maybe some work some other people have done too. I was working on a project for Honey Bunches of Oats, which is a a breakfast cereal. And uh, we were doing focus groups, and this speaks to anthropology beyond ethnography. So some of what I'll talk about will be ethnographic, but some of it will not be. In this case, Honey Bunches of Oats, we were doing focus groups. And one of our moderators from our company was doing interviews with people. And we had them talk about their breakfast experience, and we had them taste the cereal in the focus group environment. And as I'm listening to them, I'm thinking about rites of passage. I'm thinking about the movement from essentially a sleep state, waking up, maybe you're sleeping with a partner, maybe not, but you're moving from there into another state or another phase. Think of it as the middle or the liminal phase where you're having a meal. And what is that meal doing to transform you and transition you to the third phase, which would be to enter the society that you were in the day before? whether or not you've gone outside. Uh, But presumably, a lot of people do go outside. And so when I broke that down, and then as anthropologists very often do, analytically, we slow things down. I really wanted to focus in on that liminal phase, that middle phase, because it's so important. So people were separating themselves. They were then moving into this next phase. And then, of course, they re-entered. So those are the three phases that Van Genep came up with about a, over 100 years ago. And I was really interested in what happened during the liminal period when people were eating the cereal and how it might be transforming them. And what one of the things I was listening for was how they talked about the sensate properties of the cereal in terms of its sweetness and crunch and how it made them feel very optimistic and very happy And it wasn't just their caffeine. It was just the overall experience and really honing in on that and in a way slowing it down for myself and my clients helped us generate some new ideas about how to speak about Honey Bunches of Oats. Okay. I mean, that's such a powerful description and story you've just told there because it's it kind of really succinctly brings together this, or not even brings together, but defines ethnography, that it isn't just this standalone observation tool, but you're there using liminality, Victor Turner, all these types of anthropological theories coming into play, which then creates the richness. I love this image that you've created about slowing down, you know, and I guess that that's something within the business world, even you can't even think about, but actually it's essential then to understand the 360 person, as you've mentioned earlier, I'm just kind of imagining being the client there and you're both collaborating on this project, but you're talking to the client about liminality, about these anthropological theories. How does that sit with the client? Do they see us as kind of raving hippies or, uh, you know, kind of, or yeah, how does that create value to the client? Those type of theories. Well, I remember this project very well. Uh, this was the first project that we had done, my company had done, this was the Weinmensch name race um, for Post Foods. And the client that hired us was a kind of expansive creative thinker. And uh, my uh, business partner, uh, Cynthia Weinman, is a psychologist, I'm an anthropologist, and then we had someone else from our company do the actual focus group interviews. And we did several days of focus groups. And uh, the client 
was very interested in our analysis of what we were hearing. When we presented to her team, and I talked about these rites of passage, I may have called them rites of passage. I used the term liminality but only when I looked at her. I did not mention in the meeting Van Genep or Victor Turner, but I certainly was informed by them. In fact, as you mentioned with Victor Turner, I was particularly informed by his ideas about liminality because it's a time to, in a way, to play a little bit and mix things up a little bit. And we had opportunities to look at that breakfast as a kind of time when you can be a little even a little creative in what you're having. And uh, that was that was valuable to us. But I didn't press it too hard. It depends on the client. There are some clients where I will bring in, I would be very explicit about bringing in theory, whereas with other clients, I tread lightly. But you have to remember that if they're hiring me or another anthropologist in business, they want to get what they're paying for. And so they don't want us just, just to come in as market researchers. They want us to come in as anthropological market researchers. I was almost thinking about that kind of question there, and you just answered it about it's actually they're hiring a business anthropologist, not a market researcher. Did anything? I mean, how do you approach? I mean, you mentioned right at the beginning there about you know we have ethnography and we've got culture, and this you know the podcast itself, decoding culture, right? Culture is this complex ecosystem, right? How do you work with the notion of culture with your clients as a business anthropologist? Well, what I'll do is I'll talk about values, and I may talk about how the consumer makes meaning about what's important to them. So I was doing a a baking study for Duncan Hines, and they make uh, the boxed mixes for brownies and cakes and so on. And we were very interested in how people defined baking versus cooking, for example. And there are cultural attendants to that. That is what's important in in baking, what's important in cooking. So what's important in cooking is to feed the family and sustain the family. What's important is in baking is to have fun and sometimes to involve children. And one of the things that I thought that popped into my mind, and this connects to what we were talking about before, is a theory that I don't think is all that well known now, but a professor of mine when I was in graduate school invented it. And it was called the conflict enculturation theory of model involvement. Wow. I love the sound of that. It's kind of yeah, syncopated. So that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and so his idea, this is John Roberts, John M. Roberts. He was a psychological anthropologist, which was my focus in graduate school. And what he talked about is that in any given culture, it's really hard to learn the rules and it's hard to learn hard things. And so he was very interested in games. And so what he did was look at games cross-culturally. And he was very interested in how games could model behavior for children that they could use as adults. So in a society where games of skill or certain skills were required, that there were games of skill that made it easy for children to learn those skills. Yeah. And so and there and you could talk about strategy, you know, people might point to a game like Monopoly as a model of capitalism and a ways of learning capitalism. So when I was doing this study on baking, I was thinking that at least in America, the American culture that I was studying and I was talking to the moms a little bit about this. Of course, I never mentioned the conflict and culturation theory of model involvement to them. I talked to them about and sometimes with their kids in their kitchens, talked about the value of having their kids there with them. 
And they would say things like, well, to make kitchen a fun, a place where fun happens and to uh, involve my children in ways where I can have conversations with them, like my teenage daughter who I can't have conversations with otherwise, but when we're cooking, we can really talk. And then they talked about how they didn't exactly put it this way, but how their children can learn the rules of baking and how you can also be creative. So you can take a boxed baking mix, but you can do things to it, make changes to it. So you can follow very strict rules because you have to follow very strict rules from a boxed mix, but then you can do things with the frosting or do things otherwise after it's out of the oven that are creative. And we talked a little bit in conversation about that, how that might help them as they grew up, that learning this way might help them learn other things. But I connected that more broadly to a cultural understanding of how to teach children the values that you believe are important, at least in this context, in American culture, about how you follow rules, but you can also deviate from certain rules. You don't have to use the frosting they gave you. And you also in life can sometimes follow the basic rules, but then you can improvise or you can create and go to great things. So that's where that I took that. And the clients seemed to like that idea. So that was a way of combining a little bit of theory, um, but a little bit of a broader understanding of how culture is used in terms of uh, how we think of culture in terms of values and rules and so on. That's superb. And I kind of, it got me thinking there about also my experiences of the ethnography almost or the anthropologist in the kitchen and this idea about culture being holistic as well. So looking at the people, the actors, I guess, but then also the, the objects, the material culture, almost a symbolic meaning or symbolic meaning of the the products or the space is it a gendered space is it a a playful space you know and how you can then create that story of what the culture is i often find sometimes with my clients it's often doing that being able to map out the culture that then you see the innovation opportunities that sit with it as well that's right and there's also something about I just quickly kind of going back to this idea or you know our kind of one of our key identities around ethnography Something again, you or I picked up in your book around being reflective and reflexivity about that being a core thing about being the anthropologist or the, and also the business anthropologist doing ethnography. I'm wondering, kind of just exploring that a little bit, that importance about being able to check yourself as well within that space. Yeah, well, there you know, there's some anthropologists in the academy that don't even think anthropologists should be applying our tools in the business world. Of course, uh, I know that. that it's it's just not a we shouldn't be using it to make money. Yeah. So there are ethical issues that surround this. We have a chapter in that book on ethics, and Timothy and I also edited another book on ethics in business anthropology because it's such a tremendous issue. And that book had some really interesting articles on the dilemmas that people face and how they get around them and how they think about themselves and how they evaluate taking on certain projects and maybe rejecting others, when you're in the field, your mind is focused on the research. And the truth is the kind of research that I've done as a business anthropologist, you know, it's obviously much shorter. You know, I was in the field for uh, almost a year and a half. Uh, it was a whole different experience, obviously. I wasn't doing applied work. In the end, I need uh, there's a deliverable, and that deliverable has to somehow be valued by the client as a return on their investment. They've spent a lot of money for the work that I do, and they have to be they have to feel they got their money's worth. So I have to deliver that. So I'm conscious of that. I try to uh, only, uh, in my career, I tried only to work on projects that I thought were worthy. And so there are certain kinds of things that I would not work on. But my position in the field, 
and my role and my identity in the field as a researcher, not that different from one area to another. But I do think about it. On the other hand, I think, as you know, from being an anthropologist, when you're in the field, you're focused on the people that you're focusing on. Yeah. And that should be your main. And you can think about your role later. And I have from time to time done that, but I've worked on behalf of clients and the job at hand. And then later on, I could think about, for example, the ethics of it or the appropriateness of certain kinds of inquiry. You know, I'm probing into these people's lives. What business do I have doing that, especially in the interest of business? So those are considerations. That's really interesting. So let's think about, I don't know, next five years time, where do you see business anthropology developing in the future? I think a couple of different areas, and you'd think in looking at them that one would preclude the other. On on one hand, because of technology and big data overall, but also just just technology as different technology brands. There are a lot of anthropologists that are getting involved in technology. And so EPIC, the uh, ethnographic praxis, actually it's now, the C now doesn't stand for conference, it stands for community, which was a good idea because they're not just about a community. They have articles and they have all kinds of things, seminars during the year. Uh, It's a great organization. They're very tech focused. And I think if you want to see the near-term future of anthropology in business, or at least in industry, you can look to what they're doing there. I don't think that's the only place. And I think that one of the things that I, I see anthropologists doing with technology is to add context and depth, thickness, if you will, as Trisha Wang says, to big data, and meaning to quantitative data. So getting more involved with what we can do to help quantitative people think better. One of the courses that I teach at Columbia Business School is a course that combines qualitative and quantitative marketing research. And my colleague, who's a quant-oriented person, his training is really in statistics. Throughout the course, we talk about how one can inform the other. So we talk about how anthropological methods and more broadly qualitative methods, but anthropology is in there, how that can inform, for example, segmentation analysis. Yeah. And so there's a lot that we can do to help build hypotheses, ask questions in, in quantitative and so on. And I think we will continue to do that. I think anthropology also in the future will be what it's been in the past and what it is in the present in terms of just gaining deeper understandings for companies that have tried everything else. Mm-hmm. As one article said, why companies are desperate to hire anthropologists. I think companies often come to anthropologists as a last resort. Yes, yes. And they're still going to have last resorts. They've tried everything else. They've run all the surveys. <laughs> They've looked at all the data. Yeah, They've yeah. done text analysis. And I think it's we'll like, be there to... Yeah, Yeah. and we'll be there to ask the questions that they haven't yet asked. And some of that is that kind of purposeful naivete where we step back with that beginner's mind and ask the questions of that they haven't asked. Uh, as um, Rita Denny and Patty Sunderland say, what is coffee? What is a floor? Uh, what are these things in their most fundamental sense? Uh, you know, we need to do that. And no. I think that there will always be a need to do that. I think on that point, that's really good because I'm also seeing that trend where HR human resources in companies are coming for the anthropologist are, you know, not necessarily desperation, but more around, we need something else, you know, and, and actually what I do a lot of work on as well is, you know, if they're wanting to embed a customer centric culture or an innovative culture, it's looking at how teams actually work at the moment. And 
you know, trying to embrace one element of culture, which is conflict and how you work with that and the positivity of being able to work with conflict rather than it being a, a danger. And that kind of unlocks then a lot of the kind of siloed mentalities about how teams as microcultures can communicate with each other. So I really think, yeah, I can see that. Also, though, I mean, you're one of the figureheads there with the Business Anthropology Summit. And I know for 2019, it was the, the summit was held in, in New York and 2020, it's going to be in Berlin in Europe. So can you just give me a little bit of an overview about the Business Anthropology Summit? So there was a a first Business Anthropology Summit in Detroit that was conceived by Alan Bateau, who teaches at Wayne State University. And uh, there were about 75 people there. And it was just a beginning. Uh, Some people thought it was going to be a one-off. One summit, that's it, we're done. But Timothy Malafite and I, we have collaborated in a number of ways, and and we got together and we said there should be another one, and let's do it in New York. No offense to Detroit, but you know we thought more people might come to New York than would come to Detroit, and also uh, we just thought that uh, we could expand it in terms of the inclusion of people that may not have known about the first summit. And we had 160 people. If you go to businessanthro.com, there is a tab for summits and it lists uh, the summits and uh, 2019 and 2020 coming up. And actually the proceedings of the 2019 summit that Timothy and I wrote uh, will be and included writings from all the people that did panels and workshops is being published in the Journal of Business Anthropology any day now. Okay, but, great. But it's also available there. But essentially, it covered all those major fields of business anthropology that I mentioned. We decided that it would not be a typical academic conference, but we had four panels, and you, you can see what those are if you look at the proceedings. And then we had 11 workshops covering everything from questions about the future of business anthropology to how it might connect to behavioral economics, to uh, how anthropologists work in user experience and design. And even we touched on HR, as you mentioned. So there were a number of other areas, even about branding business anthropology to further it in the world. So it was really exhilarating. And the satisfaction survey that we did after indicated that people really liked it. So the next one will be in Berlin. So we'll be drawing on a somewhat different group, but I'll be sure to be there, John. I hope you will be too. I've already got the date in the diary, which, yeah, I'll definitely be coming to that. Um, We'll put the links also to the Business Summit website, to the books that we've mentioned as well, so the listeners can get to that. So listen, my final question, this is a question I'm asking every guest on Decoding Culture, is I'm going to hand you over now the symbolic anthropologist's notebook. Where would you like to take it for a year to research and why? Okay, that's that's an interesting question. One thing that's been on my mind a lot lately is the concept of cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. And I think about it in the context of business for a simple reason, that there are businesses that sell products that one could argue are examples, maybe glaring examples, of cultural appropriation. So I could really take it anywhere in the world, but because I'm in the United States, I'm going to focus here, and I might take it to a market. An example would be I I was with – I actually did this in a way, but I wasn't doing it systematically. My wife and I were visiting some friends in Philadelphia, and uh, the woman in the couple that we were with, this was a, an Indian festival, and she, they had stalls there selling items. And there was she was at the stall with my wife, and they were looking at dresses. And she saw a beautiful Indian dress that she was thinking of buying. And then she said, I don't know if I should do this because this would be cultural appropriation, and I feel co- uncomfortable about it. 
And I said to her, she's an academic, so I could say things like this. <laughs> well, how is that different from the diffusion of ideas and material culture from one culture to another? And she said, well, it's different because it really appropriation can be a bad thing. It's a kind of exploitation. Well, anyway, she ended up buying it, but then she hasn't worn it. This was about six months ago. Okay. And so what, I, what I'm very interested in is how this cultural appropriation, which some people might have thought years ago was a good thing because it was spreading cultural ideas and material culture, has now become questionable and maybe exploitative. And how that ties into the way we think about the other, how we think about commerce and so on. So that's one thing. Can I have one more? Go for it. This has really been on my mind, and I'm not the only <laughs> one. So I'm not going to reveal my politics here, but you asked the question. Yeah. Uh, I'm very interested in going to parts of the United States where belief systems collide. Yeah. So I'd be very interested in going to areas of the country where there are supporters of Donald Trump who identify as evangelical Christians, for example, how they rationalize his behavior with their beliefs. Yeah. And uh, how they coexist, and they coexist in their minds just fine. I've read quite a bit on how people talk about their um, support for President Trump, and I'm not about to reveal my politics on this. I'm just really curious about how this works. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it could be edifying for me, but I think it could be edifying for other people too. And so I'm really fascinated by it because it, it's almost there. I would think there would be a cognitive dissonance, but there doesn't seem to be. So right. why that exists, and to me that is more than a psychological question, it's really a cultural question. Maybe we should pair up as two business anthropologists, and we both do that, but then we also do the UK and Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And we can then write the book, The Manifesto. <laughs> you know, I'm sure we could. But listen, Bob, I want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time, being a guest here on Decoding Culture. I'm really looking forward to Berlin next year. And just seeing and being part of this world of business anthropology and seeing it develop. But some of the stories, examples and, and ideas and thinking that you've, you've shared in this last half an hour are absolutely fantastic. And I'll, I'll put all the links on there as well. So people will be able to kind of follow through. But um, thank you so much, Bob. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this opportunity. Great. Bye bye now. Take care. So there you are. I hope that's been interesting for you. And thanks for listening to the Decoding Culture podcast. Please do subscribe to it on iTunes and also give it a rating. If you want to learn more about other shows on This Is HCD Network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com, where you can also sign up to the newsletter and join the Slack channel where there's some really interesting conversations happening. So thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>